Well, grab your yearbooks and put on your Jinko jeans. This is Film Shake, the 90s movies podcast. I'm Jordan. And this is Nick. And this is episode 54, where we're going to cover Can't Hardly Wait from 1998. And today we have a special guest with us, Matt Pace, who has just put out a book, Talk 90s, with me. So you can see the connection here. Matt, thanks for coming on the show with us. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, dude. And you sent us a pre-copy of Talk 90s with me, where you have a lot of fun interviews with some of the actors from the 90s. So tell us about that experience putting this book together. And obviously some uh, covering some ground here where you know we're going to get into two movies that are mentioned throughout your book. Yeah, I appreciate that. So a year or two ago, I I thought it would be, I just wanted to see pretty much, hey, if I reach out to a bunch of people from the 90s and say my new book is a collection of interviews with them, let's, let's see who will be up for that. Uh, I had previously written a book called Zach Morris Lied 329 Times, where I did a statistical analysis of Say by the Bell. Uh, and interviewed a bunch of people from that show too. Um, and this was following uh, 11 years as a full-time movie critic for the Chicago Tribune's Red Eye. Uh, so just really having fun with some unique, goofy concepts for books and and what this project really wound up turning into was these fantastic and surprisingly intimate, long, phone calls with a really great variety of people from the 90s where oh I think a lot of these people are underrated I think some of the movies and shows are really big and some of them are kind of off the beaten path uh, a few that I know you guys have covered but as I was reaching out to people and it was all coming together it was very much wanting to highlight movies and shows that were still worth talking about uh, performances that I thought were worth celebrating uh, and people that who legitimately interested me and and most importantly being able to present topics that they hadn't discussed before, really trying to take the conversations to new places and provide something new with the nostalgia too. So the average length of the call was about sixty to seventy five minutes and it just I, I couldn't be more excited and proud of of what came out of that experience. Man, that's awesome. Like that, just having the opportunity to talk to some of these, you know, to us, the a 90s movie show, like Legends. First question that pops up in my head is like, how many of those people were also featured in Can't Hardly Wait? Because it seems like everybody in the 90s is in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So for for the book, I interviewed Charlie Cosmo, who was definitely someone, as I was reaching out to people, I was definitely wrong so many times if I were to have made a prediction about who I thought would say yes and who I thought would say no. I I, I don't know what the batting average would have been, but it would, it would have been so low. Uh, mm. And he was, he was definitely not someone that I necessarily would have assumed would say yes, because he, he's been very far removed from the entertainment industry for a long time. Um, you know, he's he's a professor at a university. He has experience in, in corporate law and as an educator and just but he was really awesome on the phone. I don't I don't know if anyone laughed more um, <laughs> that I talked to and not not even saying like in necessarily in 
because I was saying anything so funny. He was just sort of like joyful. Um, yeah. Really, really had a great time looking back on. And he, you know, some of the people I talked to had maybe one or two properties that I really wanted to focus on. Uh, but he's someone, of course, more of what he did, uh, whether it's Hook or or What About Bob or Dick Tracy, you know, that, that of course, was when he was much earlier. It was Can't Hardly Wait is kind of the only major thing he did when he was older than a child. Right. Yeah, we recently went back and covered Hook and, and seeing his performance there. Just, yeah, a really great child actor. And I can't say growing up, I knew like his name or watching Can't Hardly Wait in the late 90s, you know, I always loved his character, but it wasn't until later I put the two together. We're like, oh, that's the kid from Hook, you know, but uh, just rewatching it and just really enamored with his performance. And he's always been one of my favorite characters in the movie. So that's yeah, it's just so cool. You got to to chat with him and, and all these other actors who just like you said it's it, reading it it feels like you just had this kind of catching up with an old friend like intimate conversation so i really dig that that means a lot yeah matt i'm really enjoying the book i, I read the Corsmo interview i read the tom everett scott interview which is also gonna apply to this episode today but i tell you what the interview i'm looking forward to the most in this entire book is charlie talbert from angus which is a really underrated 90s movie probably my favorite 90s teen comedy such a wide-ranging spectrum i feel like there's got to be somebody as a reader who is interested in anything about 90s cinema there's got to be somebody here that you interviewed that someone's going to be interested in thank you so much yeah i i would certainly think so it would be hard to imagine someone saying oh i love the pop culture of the 90s but you missed everything that i <laughs> that i care about but but you know what if that were the case that's okay the book was very much filtered through my own experience certainly i did a absolute ton of research for every interview and and rewatch things and and listen slash watch slash read as many other interviews as possible. But certainly everyone has their blind spots from from any period. And um, I'm sure there are some people or, or some movies or shows that, that mean so much to, to certain people that are not even close to covered in this book. And maybe that's because I tried and, and the people said no. And it, maybe it's just because that was something that, that didn't come my way when when I was growing up too so it, it was very much an effort to um I think re-examine my own relationship with the things that I loved as a kid and then consider sort of you know what I want my kids to get into when they're old enough to get into seeing things now and thinking about the different stuff that gets made for them at that point uh, there's certainly no shortage of pg-rated material uh in the book because so you know, the early, early to mid nineties was, was kind of the heyday of that. And we're lucky to grow up at that time. And now that's not happening. So it's, it's hard not to focus on that when thinking about what your kids will consume too. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, you talked about some people that had said no and, you know, surprised by some that said yes. What was like your favorite interview that you did and who was like the big one that got away that you wish you could have interviewed? Sure. Yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, I I certainly reached out to a lot of people, so I don't know if I would say there was like a big one that got away. Um, and it was also because I, I should mention that, you know, the goal the goal wasn't to try to it's not like I started 
I didn't send 10 emails to, to Tom Hanks right, right. at first. Like the, the point wasn't to shoot, you know, aim as high as possible and then just kind of climb down the theoretical ladder of, of stardom or whatever, because there's no number one. I, I didn't think that would work anyways, but, but number two, it's also like, that's, I, and I know I don't need to tell you guys this as, as such awesome supporters of, of the era, but to celebrate the nineties doesn't automatically mean think of the 20 most famous actors that you can think of who are also still, in the business and then right. expect that they would want to turn back the clock and have the time to, to get on the phone with you and, and do that. So some people I talk to are still acting, but there's also, I mean, William Daniels slash Mr. Feeney is in his mid nineties right now. Ariana Richards is a painter. It's all about thinking of what the properties are and, and who right. the people are that really contributed to them. So Right. I was, I mean, everyone was, it was, I was surprised basically every time. <laughs> yeah. It seems like a, a labor of love and, you know, they definitely, like you said, appealing to your interest in kind of those like small corners of pop culture from the era and just what you gravitate to and just, you know, yeah, I think it, it is a much more like interesting gambit of interviews to see like, oh yeah, like I totally forgot about this person. Whereas like 16 interviews with, you know, all the Tom Hanks's and all the Tom Cruises of the era, you know. And I know what Tom Hanks is doing. He's in the news all the time. His social media presence is huge. But I'm always wondering, like, what happened to Angus? I want to know what he's been up to. Right. Yeah. It's also an opportunity that there are some some of these people, because as you guys saw in the book, the point wasn't just to, like, try to pressure someone to unearth some kind of untold story that that somehow no one had gotten before I I wanted to go go that route if it was there but it was also just engaging with the material in a new way and because these are not necessarily people who have been interviewed as frequently or maybe as recently it's a chance to appreciate Dougie Doug's work in a new way and and talk about elements of Cool Runnings or Operation Dumbo Drop that go down a much different route that, than any conversation before or you know, Megan Kavanaugh has talked a lot about a league of their own, but I don't think that any of the discussion that she and I had about Robin and Men in Tights has been had before at all. So just because so much of nostalgia is, I think there's a lot of value in the, the comforting aspect, but I didn't only want the book to feel like comfort food. I wanted it to be like a warm celebration that also was thought provoking and not just fun. Right. Well, it sounds like you you did a great job achieving that goal, man. So, yeah, I'm really excited to dive into to more of the book and read, especially that uh, William Daniels, Mr. Feeney interview, because he's he's an icon. He's a legend. Definitely a show I grew up with. So, yeah, that's Talk 90s with me. Where can people find the book? So it's out in hardcover, paperback, ebook. So Amazon, of course, or Barnes and Noble, Walmart. It's out there. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, man. So, Nick, last time on the show, of course, you beat me at trivia. Big surprise, right? I was shocked. So, <laughs> you, I mean, you told me, I think you're going to win this one. I think anytime you say that, uh, that's just like a nail in the coffin. Jordan, I swear when I'm writing my questions, I'm like, this is too easy. Like, he's, he's <laughs> definitely going to win this time. And then somehow you don't. I never fail to surprise you in that regard. 
<laughs> so what did you punish me with last time? Well, I, th I think it's really apt, Jordan, because, you know, you you're a very smart guy. You're really well-versed in the 90s. You should be a high achiever in 90s trivia, but yet somehow you're flunking out. It makes no sense. So it makes perfect sense for you to tell me all about 1998's Dead Man on Campus. That's right. Am, am I going to need to get my co-host uh, off himself to, so that I'll get like a good grade at trivia? Uh, at this point, I think it's the only way you can win is if I'm dead. Right. Yeah, I just have to kill you. Um, yeah. So Dead Man on Campus from 98 starring Tom Everett Scott, who we mentioned uh, he was also in uh, American Werewolf in Paris, um, That Thing You Do with the aforementioned Mr. Hanks. And I, I should also mention Mark Paul Gosselier, who, you know, was Zach and Saved by the Bell. Yeah, so this is a movie I, I grew up with. I remember seeing in the theater, actually, and then having on VHS and, and watching multiple times and looking at the 15% Rotten Tomatoes and then rewatching this, you know, is, is quite, uh, quite a revisit. So obviously the plot by today's standards um, not going to be made anytime soon in our current climate. So that this covers where uh, Tom Everett Scott and Paul, Mark Paul Gosselier are in college. They're both flunking out and they discover a rule in the college rule book that if their roommate commits suicide, then they would get straight A's and basically just be able to pass the semester. So they go about seeking a roommate who is suicidal, having mental health issues and encouraging them in, in nefarious ways to kill themselves so they could get good grades. So yeah, terribly insensitive uh, topic for sure. But I will have to say rewatching this, I still, you know, despite despite the subject matter, despite kind of the, the off-color humor there, I feel like there is enough left in this movie that still kind of warms my heart or still, you know, makes me laugh or amuses me in certain ways. There are lines in this movie that have just lived rent-free in my head since I've seen since I saw it. And remember quoting it with friends back in the day, like the random bar scene where one of the drunks turns to the boys and and says, some people eat bucks. <laughs> and just the way, like the way some of the lines are delivered here, just, just make me laugh and just stick in my head. And I'm pretty sure there's probably like at least two days out of a month that I'll just randomly think or say out loud, some people eat bugs or, oh, especially the clicking noise that the character Cliff makes. So Lachlan Monroe, I think, is definitely the just kind of the standout who steals the show of this movie. He plays Cliff. My name is Cliff, brother of Joe. I got me some crack. I want me some hoes. Let me hear you say, yeah, yeah. Let me hear you say, yeah. Yeah. Let me hear you say, yeah. He's this 
frat guy that they try and initiate as their roommate who's just insane. He's over the top. He's, you know, just erratic and kind of psychopathic. Uh, uh, he sets a girl's hair on fire. Who's that? Uh, Allison Hannigan from uh, later on would be in uh, How I Met Your Mother. And you also have Jason it's Willow Siegel. from Buffy. Damn it. Yeah. We're in the 90s, Jordan. Come, come in on, 1998, come on. it's Willow from Buffy. Come on. Whatever. I was never a Buffy fan. But you also have you've got Jason Siegel and you've got Allison Hannigan. So how how can I not bring up How I Met Your Mother? True, you also have got uh, Linda Cardellini, um, who was in freaks and geeks with jason siegel so you just hey you've got a ton of different like teen stars here who are going to break out soon but that were just kind of unknowns at the time but yeah lachlan going back to lachlan monroe he sets her hair on fire uh he tries to put it out by urinating on her hair um he's got the little like clicking noise as he wiggles his fingers and i i, I don't know if i got it from this movie but i definitely still do that much to my wife's chagrin she's just like ah. Uh, Stop making those noises. I'm like, it's dead, on, dead man on campus, man. I'm sorry. It's just implanted in my brain from this media. So I still really enjoyed it, actually. It wasn't that much of a punishment for me. Obviously, a lot of it doesn't hold up. The, both the Tom Everett Scott and Mark Paul characters are pretty despicable in the end. They they don't really redeem them, I would say, you know, in a, in a stereotypical sense. But I don't know. I, I still... I still kind of have like a soft spot for this movie in my heart, despite all of its problems. So what do you guys think about it? Jordan, I did watch it. I watched it, man. I had to. And it's weird the amount of cast overlap with Can't Hardly Wait. But like yeah. I think you said earlier, every single person from the 90s is in Can't Hardly Wait. So it has overlap <laughs> with everything. I thought this movie was really interesting. First of all, this this is weird. So you're not like his character at all. But something about the way that Mark Paul Gasso looks at the beginning of this movie and moves around, it reminds me of you. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you picked up on that back in the day and like it absorbed into your aesthetic. Again, yeah. Like, maybe that's just to my detriment, but yeah, I feel like so much of this movie is just <laughs> implanted in my brain and... um yeah, that that's probably definitely not a good thing, but <laughs> but still. <laughs> yeah, that was that was weird. That was one of the first things I picked up on here. Yeah, you look so weird with the dark hair, right? Yeah, it's nuts. It's nuts. And you know, when and say by the bell, I just hated his character, right? Preppy, right? Like I like Slater and, and he, I, Slater always called Zach Preppy and he had that blonde hair all slicked up, you know, that hair that you and I are always hating on, really, right? That we're jealous of. <laughs> we're so jealous of, yeah. And then in this, I was like, man, this is not the Mark Paul Gosselier that I'm used to. And, the, you know, I looked it up. I never knew this about him. His mother is from Indonesia. He's half huh. Indonesian. I didn't know that either. That's, That's a, crazy. a fact I learned because I watched this movie. Thanks to you. Let's <laughs> see you learn something. Thanks buddy. to you losing a trivia for like the thousandth time and me just watching <laughs> the movie out of sympathy. I learned a fact there. But man, this movie, I don't have the nostalgia for it that you do. I do have nostalgia for the 90s. This feels like only the late 90s could produce this movie. Yes. Right? And the tone of it. The tone of it is so weird. Like I love the 90s vibe and aura that's around it. But there's an ickiness. It reminds me of mm -hmm. very bad things. Yeah. Remember that that's movie? That's a good analogy. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the 
that even though they're well they are teenagers even though they're college students they're freshman year students so it kind of reminds me like the teenage version of very bad things in a way except you know a stripper doesn't get murdered exactly but it's got that vibe where like i'm gonna call mark paul gothler zach zach is a sociopath in this man like yeah <laughs> he just knows how to charm people he he just seems so nice and he just like raps Tom Everett Scott around his finger so quickly, but the guy, the guy's a sociopath and poor Tom Everett Scott. He's such a likable guy and everything. And I really kind of admire what he did in this because yeah. he, he is really despicable by the end of the movie, but he still has that likable energy that keeps you in the movie to where you don't just want to turn off. Like, God, these guys are terrible. I don't want to watch this anymore. And I had fun watching it, but I, it's like a five out of 10 for me. Like there are a lot of things I like there are, there are some things I don't like. I don't know, man. I, I had fun watching it. I'm glad I watched it. I'm not sure if I'll watch it again. I can see why young Jordan liked it for sure. <laughs> for sure. What about you, Matt? Yeah, I, I think both of you hit on some really uh, important aspects of Dead Man on Campus. Um, Jordan, I think I think this movie is a great example of the way that a movie that you see at a particular time in your life can endear itself to you. And that doesn't mean that when you see it years later, you know, there are some things that all of us have returned to and it hasn't held up for us, but, but the ridiculousness of some of the lines or just the way that I think it, it seems to have still uh, amused you or kind of flipped that switch on of, of the memory of, of your enjoyment of it before I think is is part of what I think made the 90s cool because it's not that there isn't a crazy amount of material being made now, but these like medium to sub-medium budget movies, the things that were just sort of on the, wind up being on the shelf at Blockbuster or that someone watch it, watches it 2 a.m. in their dorm or something, the, the things that just weren't trying to do a lot and might not have done that many things well, but <laughs> worked worked for some people for whatever reason. You are right that I, this is a movie that I've never really been able to get through. Uh, <laughs> and I, I think, I think Lachlan Monroe and the, the Cliff character are partially to blame for that. Oh, no. It's just so over the top. Yeah. But Nick's point about the tone is also relevant. And I think part of what was difficult for me all along and even in going back and watching some some clips to refresh my memory even in 1998 the the seediness of the premise but also the inability of the movie to sort of figure out like the right black comic approach i mean very bad things was 1998 also there was something really weird in the water <laughs> this year and right. just in both in both of those movies were very unpleasant and unenjoyable for me yeah, I was not a big fan of Very Bad Things. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that has our boy Christian Slater in it, right? It does now. have Christian Slater. Yeah. It has the Slater. Yeah, I remember being bummed out. Like, I really want to watch, watch this and enjoy this because of Slater and because of some of the other actors in there. But yeah, it had that ickiness to it that just kind of left you needing to take a shower. And, you know, there's parts of this that for Dead Man on Campus that kind of bring you to that same place and. I feel like it has trouble kind of getting started too. And then like, yeah, figuring out where to go with the premise. But yeah, there's enough of like little details and like little lines that still amuse me and that I still find funny that kind of carry me through. And yeah, it kind of sparked that, 
sense of nostalgia. So I can totally understand how like most people either actively don't like this or just like don't care and are, are indifferent. I think we should note too this being an MTV production, how <laughs> that was the thing, you know, and then <laughs> the soundtrack being so packed with so many songs, like from scene to scene to scene, just like can't hardly wait. And we'll get into the soundtrack there, but yeah, it's, it's definitely nostalgic for that type of MTV movie that, you know, half of it exists just to put out a soundtrack with just killer song after killer song, despite the movie just not being that great. Right. But I love like the kind of skeeziness of the movie, like permeates into that to where it's like, it's like kind of cool. Like if you're just looking at your subtitles for your TV, when the movie starts, it says David Bowie's golden years play, but it's not David right. Bowie. It's the Marilyn Manson version. Right. Yeah. See, even the Manson there, yeah, brings like a little kind of skeeziness to it. Right. But Jordan, I will go to bat for you talking about little touches in this movie because there are a lot of really clever little touches. Like both of the movies we're going to talk about today really made me miss the skill of early 90s opening credits because all the test score pages with the names of the crew for the movie at the beginning, I thought that was brilliant. I mean, that, a lot of work obviously went into that, but just a lot of like physical comedy touches in this movie. Like there's a moment where Mark Paul Gosselier hits Tom Everett Scott in the face, I believe with a chalkboard and yeah. busts his nose open. And I don't remember what Tom Everett Scott says. He says something kind of whiny while he's holding his nose. Gosselier answers him and just to like show his sociopathy, like he mimics back to him. The same right, voice holding his nose, holding yeah. his nose. <laughs> and it's such like a stupid little evil touch there. But there's a lot of stuff like that that's kind of brilliant too, sprinkled in. Yeah. You can't say that it doesn't try. You know, like there's no lack of effort here where you would almost assume a movie like this, like, oh yeah, like teen movie, late nineties, just throw on, you know, some like alt rock stuff on the soundtrack and just get these kids through this plot. But there's so much attention to detail watching it now or I'm I'm really kind of shocked at yeah all the little gags and like payoffs that it does have despite it lacking in some areas too so I don't know yeah it's just like a weird mix of things that yeah it still amuses I do think the movie is a a little bit of a shame at least just in the sense that the time Everett Scott is as was mentioned is just so effortlessly likable I mean breaking out very justifiably in that thing you do and then taking the role in this and an American werewolf from Paris and that just did not do good things for his career but no matter the quality of the movies you know none of those are his fault by any means he can still be as appealing as possible even in kind of the wrong project so I I would have loved to see him get more of a chance of leading roles in, in some better movies. And Mark Paul Gossler, I think, is is a really good actor, um, but he didn't really get a ton of big movie roles either. And while I really like both of them individually, as a duo, I think the way that they... Maybe it's the characters, or maybe the casting, or just the direction here, but the, the whole thing just doesn't quite fit. So I think it probably... Aside from the movie rubbing a lot of people the wrong way, it probably made certain folks think things that were not accurate or fair about the performances or the stars, when in reality, they're both 
capable. This just wasn't really the showcase for it. It actually, to my surprise, uh, going back to Dead Man on Campus, uh, reminded me a little bit of, did you guys see the movie uh, 10 years ago, Damsels in Distress? No, never saw it. It was one of my favorite movies of, of that year. It, was, uh, it starred Greta Gerwig, Adam Brody's in it a little bit, um, Billy Magnuson before anyone really knew who he was. It's my favorite Whit Stillman movie by far. Uh, okay. And it deals with college students who, at least partially, are working with depressed students at a suicide prevention center. And that's that's only a, a portion of the movie, but if you if you catch up with it, it's streaming on Tubi now, actually, for the first time streaming anywhere, as far as I know, in the last decade. I think you'll see the connection of how it feels like using some, turning some very dark elements into knowing where the joke is, knowing where the sadness is, finding the right tone, and being sort of insightful about some of the absurdities about human behavior, about society, uh, in a way that Dead Man on Campus just really struggles with. So it's like the A-plus version of Dead Man on Campus. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> Strange the studio didn't want to use that quote on the poster. I don't know why. <laughs> it's like a new and improved Dead Man on Campus. <laughs> and it sounds like we could maybe argue that Dead Man on Campus is uh, responsible for Tom Everett Scott's uh, career not taking off like it should have. So... That's another nail in the coffin, if you will, for this movie. So sorry, I, I brought it here to, to everybody's disappointment. <laughs> so, sorry that I'm still a 12 year old and uh, enjoy this movie, you know, and it's just seeped into my personality, apparently. So put it to bed, then. No one wants to talk about that movie anymore. Let's move on to 1998's Can't Hardly Wait. This movie, to me, is the late 90s. I feel like it sums up so much about the pop culture at the time. You know, you've got the gangster wannabe kids, you've got the goth kids, the Jinko jeans, the X-File obsessed kids. You've got your certain brand of late 90s jocks and nerds and band kids and everything. Uh, yeah, there's just so many facets and so many characters and little details like this. Again, I feel like there's so much attention to detail throughout this that it's it's kind of hard to describe and capture in words. After watching this, I just kind of sat with it and I was like, I I don't I don't even know if I can remember everything I just saw, but I had such a good time revisiting this. So I wanted to ask, starting with you, Nick, what is your experience with can't hardly wait had you seen it when it came out or how did that how, how did that go down for you yeah i've got to kind of echo what matt said before the interview in his book i 
I was just too cool for school back then, Jordan. You know me. I, I can't like anything that's current, right? Or whatever the kids are into these days, even when I was that kid, Jordan. So back in 1998, when this came out, I was like, yeah, it's not as good as American Graffiti. That's way better than this. Uh, this movie's stupid. <laughs> that was basically my entire stance, right? Like, and then uh, everyone got the soundtrack, and I liked it, right? Like, I love the soundtrack to it. But I'm like, oh, I mean, it, it's not really that good. It's just, like, derivative of previous forms of music. Like, I was really just a huge douche about this movie when it came <laughs> out. And then I watched it, I don't know, four or five years ago. And there's some space between me and the movie at that point. And I just thought, man, I was being really stupid. <laughs> this is such an enjoyable movie. And, I mean, you know, I graduated... Right after these kids did. I mean, th this is my time in my era of late high school. I should have been getting into it instead of being too cool for school. Because watching it now, it makes me nostalgic for so many things. There's just so much fun stuff in this movie. When I watched it this time, I was basically just crying the whole time. <laughs> I wish it was 1998 again. Oh. I didn't know it would <laughs> never get better than that. And I don't mean my life. I mean, my life is great. But I just mean culturally, I really miss that time now and this movie just encapsulates it i feel like yeah so it's funny i to think about sort of like your the life cycle of what your experience with the movie you know i very vividly remember hating this when it came <laughs> out not because i thought i was too cool for it by any means in my teenage sort of angsty mentality i resented the wish fulfillment aspect of it the movie and even even rewatching it now i i definitely don't hate it now there are things i very much don't go for there are a bunch of things i do appreciate now but but even now the movie sort of feels like it's written by preston uh, yeah in a way <laughs> and and that aspect of it i think at the time for the idea that maybe if it if if this movie was trying to be made for sort of teenage guys who are trying to figure it out or something, which is, I don't know if that's the right demographic to even try to make a movie for. And if so, <laughs> this is probably not the way to do it. But I just watched this and after it was over, I was like, yeah, yeah, right. Oh, okay. I, I just don't buy this. This seems stereotypical and far-fetched and it, it was too broad to make me believe any of the turns i guess although i will say charlie corsmo does a great job of selling kind of the the reversal of where william is so intent on revenge and then um at least for a little while doesn't even you know mike apologizes and and william feels better and and he kind of doesn't want to get back him anymore which that that moment i think really works yeah um but i just remember really resenting it so I probably didn't see it for a really long time, and then I rewatched re it, not for the second time, but maybe just the third or fourth before I interviewed Charlie Corsmo, and then caught up with it again in the last week before um, this conversation. And it's probably more memorable because of who is in it and because of individual individual moments than anything it does as a whole. That would hardly be the only example of a movie that is remembered for that, so that's okay too. Matt, you said something there that resonated with me, where also when I was watching this movie, it felt like wish fulfillment with Ethan Embry's character, because it's like he's rewarded for his passivity. Like He does nothing. He's 
totally passive, which in real life you're not re you're not rewarded for, right? <laughs> That's not how it works, and everything works out for him in the end. And there's a scene where he's told off by Jennifer Love Hewitt. And she doesn't even know who he is. She doesn't realize who he is, that he's the person who's written her this letter. But watching it now, when she tells him off, everything that she says to him is actually very apt and deserved. Right. <laughs> but at the same time, being in my 40s and I guess a lot more sentimental now, if the ending hadn't been happy, I would have been pissed. <laughs> right, right. Now, I was totally going to ask you guys what you thought of the Preston and Amanda relationship you know i figured we'd get to this later but we can jump on it now or you know and i say relationship in quotes because yeah he's pining for this girl and the whole setup is basically okay it's a big party at the end of the year you've got ethan Embry's character preston who's been quote unquote in love with amanda beckett played by jennifer love hewitt and she's finally broken up with her boyfriend Mike Dexter, who's just head of the football team, you know, just all around jock and, and doofus and idiot character. But they've finally broken up. So it's like his last chance before they go off to college and everything to align the fates, if you will, and uh, and have his chance to get with Amanda girl. He's been pining for this girl he doesn't even know. It sounds like they maybe haven't even had a whole conversation and he steps up steps up to the plate after all these dudes have just ogled her and like are trying to have sex with her and stuff at, at the end of the party and she tells him the truth like you've just had some fantasy of me in your head for four years and you don't even know me but then like you said nick she's got to read the letter you know and that just basically affirms to her everything that she wants to hear about herself and that what she's searching for and she's not just mike's girlfriend and everything so i thought that was funny and then like i started to think about it like you know she even says the line well, i don't know maybe i should just be single like as they're parting ways at the end uh, but then you know like he comes back and they get together and then you know you've got the subtitles at the end of the movie like they hung out for seven hours and then they you know they're still together now and everything but it, it started to make me think about this movie like overall as a whole is and you know, i've seen some people complain about some of the cliche moments or it's just like every other teenage movie but i feel like there's some slyness here too and it works in those little details that we talked about with dead man on campus as well where the i feel like the writers here are very aware that this is stupid <laughs> and that there are stupid choices and that you know obviously a, a healthy person who just got out of a four-year relationship would just remain single and then like the the movie is not like preaching that that's a great idea or anything but i feel like there's like a tongue-in-cheekness throughout all this that it's aware of and it's like, okay, we'll, we'll give you your happy ending, you know, and we'll kind of like make it all right by saying they stayed together. Like this, that this ultimately was a good choice. So I don't know. It just made me kind of rethink the, the quality of the writing here too. And like some of the self-awareness, like even if you could point at some moments and say, this is all kind of cliche teenage movie stuff that it feels very, very purposely done. And I think there are aspects of it that, that we can still celebrate or, or look at as being successful rather than painful. You know, the, the notion of Preston being really intellectually sound, he's going to Dartmouth, he obviously has some things together, but he's so emotionally ridiculous right. and, and that he, that he turns, Oh, we happen to be in the same pop tart. He thinks that's a sign <laughs> from the universe that that is, that is good writing in the sense of capturing how 
uh, oblivious and naive the high school or maybe people at any time, but in particular, the high school mind can be when you don't actually know anything. So I think that characterization is done really well. Part of where that comes crashing down is the fact that he truly doesn't know her and she is just written as a fantasy. She's totally benign. The movie does become almost watching it now like a horror film of every guy just going right after her and not even really treating her as a person, including even Mike's friends have probably been spending a ton of time with her over the last four years. They break up and the first thing they say is, oh man, but Amanda's so hot. Like, do they not have a relationship with her as a person? Yeah, and it feels like the movie doesn't really have overall a relationship with her as a person because no. yeah, I think you're you're right in saying that, that ultimately we don't get to really know her or know much about her character other than, yeah, she's this hot girl and this fantasy girl that Preston has dreamed of and now he has his moment. You know, there's there's not much other than like a few moments where she's like, oh, I don't really know like who I am or, you know, what I am outside of just being Mike's girlfriend. So like, okay, you know, she has some reflection here and she's kind of dis distinguished from the other kind of vapid girls who are just like, oh my God, you're prettier than Gwyneth than everything. But beyond just some of those small moments overall, I don't feel like she's given much of a character to work with. Yeah, just beyond like dream girl. She's like the movie's MacGuffin. Like she's just a projection of what everyone kind of wants her to be. Like I feel like the codex for the movie is the scene that ends very grossly where her second cousin is like, hey, you talk to me. I lay your burdens down at my feet. Let's have a talk. And then what does he try to do at the end of that? He tries to make out with her. It's so gross. She's like, you're disgusting. You're my second cousin. What are you doing? I feel like that <laughs> movie is like kind of tipping its hand there a little bit. Maybe it's saying there that everyone's behavior toward her is wrong, including itself. Nick, did this remind you of a movie that you've been punished with before, also starring Jennifer Love Hewitt? Oh, dear God. <laughs> Look, I, I don't want to like cast too much shade. I will just say that there is a lot more charisma in the performances in this movie than there are in Trojan War. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to, if you were leading to Trojan War, a movie that I don't know if, if the three of us have seen it, that might represent 50% of the viewership of Trojan War. <laughs> I saw that movie on TV a lot growing up. Yeah, that was one I also, like Dead Man on Campus, grew up with and kind of had this fondness for that it felt like nobody else had <laughs> and then i showed it to nick or punished him with it and he's like oh dude i hate this movie <laughs> i'm like oh, i still like it I, it still amuses me in a lot of ways but it's basically the same thing from that movie too where jennifer love hewitt is just this dream girl uh you know just this kind of pie in the sky idealized version of uh you know high school fantasy but yeah i will agree nick that there i feel like there is a lot more working here in can hardly wait there's a lot more characters and just attention to detail and a lot more just hilarious moments that yeah it's like the sum of its parts really make it work in the end you almost have to wonder what it would have been like if it wasn't such a large ensemble i'm not going to miss a chance to bring up a absolutely absurd movie that I've always loved for some reason, which is Whatever It Takes, which came yes. out a couple of years after Can't Hardly Wait. And 
is no one's idea of a brilliant film, but it is like such an example of what I was saying before of like, I laughed so hard when I saw it in the theater in the year 2000, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And mostly for things that are not successful as comedy by any means, but it's just so absurd. I, I seem to remember that there's a director's commentary on that DVD where the director is just apologizing the whole time. <laughs> but the reason I mention it is because for all of that movie's silliness or or failures, that's also a film in which a sheepish guy played by Shane West is fantasizing about a girl he doesn't even really know, who's played by Jodie Lynn O'Keefe. And he eventually discovers in some big comic moments that he thinks that she's gross or that she does things that are just not appealing to him, which that's that's not the best way to show that people are multifaceted. But at the very least, that movie peels back the layer from just saying that the main character thinks she's hot. Therefore, not only is she the best looking girl in school, but they lived happily ever after because his interest in her automatically means she is great. She likes him. They're still together as the, as the line says on the screen, which that, that moment, I think I would have felt differently about the entire movie of can hardly wait. If that line hadn't been on screen and it said they had a great weekend, but mm -hmm. then that was it. Matt, I'm so glad that you bring up whatever it takes because that is another movie from this era that I feel like I, I don't know if I really champion it anymore, but it's one I felt like nobody I knew growing up had seen, but like a handful of me and my friends. And it's a movie that also has lines in it that live just rent free in my head, like 117 as an absurd number that one of the characters throws out after he gets hit by a baseball. And he's like, how many fingers am I holding up? 117. <laughs> so much. And I rewatched it recently with my wife and, you know, she hated it. And it, it like it definitely <laughs> went down in esteem for me in some ways where it's like, oh, yeah, this is definitely product of its time and pretty problematic. But I think you are right in that analysis of the plot there where at least the character does kind of overcome some of those childish fantasies. But, you know, it also falls into the trope of, oh, my my best friend who was here all along, this girl that I always, you know, kind of took for granted. She's the real love of my life, you know, so we've seen that a lot in movies. But yeah, I don't know for anybody who hasn't seen whatever it takes. If you're into this like late 90s, early 2000s era movies in this regard, it's it's definitely worth checking out. Wait, is that the one with Marla Sokoloff? Yeah. It takes? Ah, yes. Okay. I was a fan of hers. I think I've threatened you with punishing you with it at some point. Right. The end of that movie always made me feel really icky. Yeah, it's kind of another one that has some ickiness to it, you know. But then again, a lot of just funny small moments that win me over. Didn't you love the baseball coach, Jordan? <laughs> yeah, always chewing the tobacco and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. And then the, the kid. Uh, oh, it was Aaron Paul who gets his dad drives him to school and as the garbage truck man. And he's like, thanks, dad. And he drives him to the party <laughs> in, the, in the garbage truck. Uh, so but anyway, we're, we're here to talk <laughs> so about dumb. Kid Harley Wade. <laughs> so, so dumb, but so great. I love whatever it takes so much, man. So just kind of speaking of some of those lines from these movies, you know, just those little small details that stick in my head. Some from Can't Hardly Wait. Anytime like my leg falls asleep, like I'm pretty sure right now sitting down for so long, my butt is asleep. But uh, if my leg falls asleep, then I will say 
can't feel my legs. I have no legs! Just randomly to the air. <laughs> Nobody around me would understand <laughs> I'm quoting this movie. Or anytime I hear the name Amanda, I have to say, Amanda! <laughs> There's a lot of great ones. The line readings in this, like Lauren Ambrose, uh, been a big fan of hers since Six Feet Under, which is weird. There are so many weird, like, TV show links here. There's a part where a pot brownie hits her in the face, and then the stoner guy comes and licks it off of her face. And it's <laughs> yeah. her stoner boyfriend from Six Feet Under a few years later, which is just so bizarre. But there's a line reading that she has. I don't even remember what the context is, but she says, My cousin named her dog Samantha. And I don't know why. She just says it's so weird. It's so funny. All the, or like the nerds have so many good lines, man. Also some that are really a little disturbing, but I love the one before Cosmo goes into the party and they're like prepping him because, you know, he's going to pull this big prank before he ends up becoming the coolest kid at the party. William, you could get drunk. You could get addicted. It's just right. <laughs> so over the Just top. the way it's delivered. Yeah. So over the, you could get addicted. Yeah. <laughs> And then uh, Seth Green, you know, just all throughout this movie. How did he not win an Oscar? How did he well, not win right. an Oscar for this performance? Starting off as the gangster wannabe kid and just, again, the line uh, as he's trying to get with all the hot girls at the party. Yo, Tina. Come on, dance. I'm allergic. Allergic? To dancing? Yeah. And that's Clea Duvall. I'd never noticed. Yeah, that's Clea second. Duvall for like one second, second in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Or Jason Siegel is in this too. Yeah. As Watermelon Boy. Right. Did we even mention he's in Dead Man? Yeah, we did mention he's in yeah, Dead Man on campus. But Tara from Buffy is in here too. Another Buffy connection. Endless Buffy connections. The fact that Jason Siegel has a very small part in this and that Josh Radner has a very small part in not another teen movie. I like to think that the two of them talked about that at some point, but I also. <laughs> feel pretty sure that they didn't selma blair's in here for like five seconds too it's like a it's just a bunch of cameos and some of the things like are almost funnier to think about or read about than they even play in the moment like when william says he he recognizes paradise city because uh the guy <laughs> he tutored in math used to make him listen to it right uh <laughs> like that doesn't, I don't think I laugh at that when he says that, but then imagining how difficult, you almost, I almost wish for a cutaway <laughs> of him trying to tutor him while the guy's blasting the song. That would have been funnier than just like talking about that happening. Didn't in the interview, he said he they tried to choreograph that moment and then they just decided to just like let him go crazy with it. Yeah, and that it was like the first thing he did um, coming onto the movie late and then just diving in right with that performance, which is so... Or was it doing the, the vocal part? Yeah, they just had him record the vocal part, which yeah. you know, sounds really off-key and, and terrible, <laughs> but it's so fun. Like 
uh, mixed in there with actual song audio. What's great about that is that the movie is such a, an uneven mishmash, but I think part of why the, a lot of the Williams stuff works so well is because we see his trajectory is sort of what the movie thinks it's doing with Preston, but it isn't. Whereas William is actually becoming uninhibited and sort of getting the things that he could have had if he just would have loosened up a little bit or not taken himself so seriously. That theme works. I mean, yeah. well, set, set aside that, that the message is sort of through drinking, which I <laughs> they probably <laughs> wouldn't try to say. Well, they had to cut out the drinking, right? Because this originally got an R rating as of kids at an un unattended party drinking. So it looked like they digitally cut out you know, where he's supposed to be drinking tequila, they replaced it with a lemon before he like licks the salt off this girl's neck. I don't know, just like all these weird choices and thinking back to the late nineties where it's like, oh no, we're gonna have to make this movie an R because there's kids drinking at a party and smoking or or whatever. You know, it's like I don't know. Things have changed a lot, right? Yeah. I agree, though, with the William character. I do feel like that's like a more relatable, realistic trajectory, because it also kind of reminds me of like a, a kid maybe who grew up in a small town. I'm not projecting myself here at all, but, you know, you grow <laughs> up somewhere where you don't really fit in, where people don't really get you. And really, like, you know, he he's like the nerd, right? Just because that's the only box that he can kind of be put in, at least as far as this movie is like pushing clicks is a thing. But he's also really cool and personable, which no one has really seen. So whenever they do that, the Animal House style, where are they now, uh, subtitles on the screen at the end, it kind of makes sense that he would go somewhere bigger, like a much bigger pond, where in this smaller pond, he's kind of getting herded by these other fish. And when he has room to breathe, he's actually like the coolest, best fish. Yeah, I really like how they flip the trope here, too, of the nerd kid, because a lot of movies you would just see that play out, right? Like nerd kid gets revenge against jock kid, like gets his comeuppance. But it's different here where, you know, he's seeking revenge. And then for a long time, it's just basically the best night of his life where, you know, he's getting drunk. He's singing the Guns N' Roses song. I can't feel my legs. All these girls just all of a sudden want to make out with him. You know, it's just, it goes over the top and it's ridiculous for sure. But then, you know, they he has kind of this, tender moment if you will with mike where after mike gets humiliated in front of everybody then he connects with william and he's like yeah sorry about you know knocking you down oh when was that oh yeah that was this morning at graduation <laughs> but they form this like weird bond for a moment and you you kind of believe that and then at the end where they get released from jail and he sees him in the diner and he you know it's like hey mike yeah thanks for telling the cops all that stuff and then you know mike is still the same same guy. Oh, what do you, you get out of here, Urkel? And he, you know, does the whole like hands flipped on his face, makes the Urkel sign, which is another oh. just uh telltale <laughs> late nineties thing that I picked up from this. I think that moment contains worlds for me right there. Yes, it, it makes me feel two things. The first is I like that like the growth there is just that he did like privately tell the police like, hey, it was my fault this guy got drunk, like let him out of here. Like he, he does that one like mercy for William, like that one good guy thing to show just the tiniest bit of growth. But then like he's still the, a huge, stupid douchebag. <laughs> he still right. sucks, right? And he's got to be a douche in front of his friends, right? And he's, he can't like let his guard down in front of these guys. Exactly. But like on more of a minutia level, 
that part really made me miss when like nerd things were niche right like oh you like <laughs> star trek nerd right like i kind of miss whenever things like that were like nerd properties because i feel like they were better now that's just like mainstream stuff right like jj abrams directed three star trek movies right like Disney yeah. and Star Wars, you know, I'm going to go on one of my rants. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but I do miss whenever, like, nerdy stuff was for nerds. And this yeah. movie reminded me of that. I love all the X-Files and Star Wars references the nerds make here. Yeah, because it's like, you know, if you count yourself as a nerd and not just, like, somebody who enjoys those things a part of the mainstream, then you feel like watching this, like, oh, that was when those things were ours, not everybody's, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And I think part of what we're touching on, too, is that this movie is strange and that the two characters that I guess we're supposed to think are the most main characters, at least in the sense that it's like the last storyline to be shown and resolved. Preston and Amanda are by far the least interesting people on the screen. So that's yes. why we're because we're, even even Mike, as you guys were just saying, we see that he's someone who is insecure and really terrible when his friends are around and, you know, with peer pressure and just being being a, a pretty bad person in public. But for whatever reason, he has that nice moment with William and seems sincere in that apology. We at least get more than one shade of almost everybody except for, I mean, there's a line here and there. Maybe it's not like we don't get any other details about Preston and Amanda. It's, I did find myself wondering why she arrived to school a month after it started. Little things that are not important, but but ultimately it's just, it's also, it, it made me think about the degree to which like the puppy dog character, speaking of Josh Randner, it was, I was thinking of like <laughs> the first season or two of How I Met Your Mother, a show that I love, but that started so painfully earnest, much like the Preston character like that that just doesn't play that's an interesting comparison between Preston and uh Radner's character and how I met your mother and thought about that yeah he's he's very much like late 90s every man bright-eyed and hopelessly romantic he seems like super nice like like everybody probably likes him but he's not really you know, he's kind of one of those guys that like is a floater between crowds, but like he only really is close to maybe Denise or like a few other people. He reminded me a lot of me <laughs> in 98, <laughs> like like you were talking about Mark Paul Gosselaar reminding you, Nick, of me uh, in that time. But yeah, at the same time, you're right. Like he, you don't really get to know him that well. And he's kind of one dimensional in a lot of ways. It was funny reading about how Ethan Embry barely remembered making this movie because he was so stoned often and it just seemed like from all the stuff reading about this like he's so disinterested in the making of this movie but then you have him portraying this like very earnest character who's just hopelessly romantic ethan will always remind me of mark from empire records and I grew up loving that movie on a rewatch recently. It fell pretty hard. It, it did not hold up, but I still really love him in that role. And I'll always think of him in the scene where he talks to Guar, the band through the TV and they pull him in and they eat him in this big, like rubber monster. Uh, but yeah, I, I, st I still thought he was like a really, I really loved him as the lead here, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying as far as like, there is, something left wanting as far as showing different sides of his character or growth. 
yeah. but he's just got such a, like an innocent stoner vibe going for him. And, you know, he's kind of got that likability like Tom Everett Scott, which is like hard not to root for him in his earnestness, but kind of feel like I wish we would have seen a little bit more character development. Yeah, like he, he is very likable to me, I think. And again, that's probably like a lot of Ethan Embry's energy. The guy is just naturally likable. And Jennifer Love Hewitt like has that natural magnetism. But I do think they're the weakest part of the movie. I think it's pretty telling that, you know, the party ends and there's still like 20 minutes of movie left. And in those last 20 minutes, the rest of the characters in the movie are kind of recontextualized a bit. Because little twists happen that kind of shed new light in their character or kind of force those characters to grow, really. Everyone kind of grows a little bit. But Ethan Embry's still a sad sack who hasn't confessed his feelings to Jennifer Love Hewitt. And Jennifer Love Hewitt is just absent until she pops up at the end, right? Like, she's just not there. So, I do think that says a lot. But, I don't know, for some reason, again, that's something that bothered me when I was younger watching it. Now, there's just so much other stuff going on, even though I do think that they're the weakest part of the movie. And then I, I do feel like William, Charlie Korsman's character, is almost more of the protagonist than Preston is. I don't know. It doesn't bother me as much now, I guess. I, probably because yeah. of old man sentimentalism i forgot how much <laughs> william is kind of centered in this movie as like a secondary protagonist just judging from my memory i would have said like oh yeah he's just kind of one of the bit characters but he he has a whole arc dude you know, he, he goes through like, the hero's journey he goes yeah. to literally you know how the hero has to die and go down to hell and then come back right he gets flashed by a pretty girl and he he dies for like five seconds, right? When he's singing Paradise <laughs> City. And then he has, in, in my opinion, the the most memorable moment of the movie, like just barely above I Can't Feel My Legs, where he dies and falls to the ground. And then he is resurrected and pops back up and just <laughs> yes. no look grabs the microphone and starts singing again, dude. He just, he, he goes through the hero's journey. He is, he's Hercules here, man. William is Hercules and can't hardly wait. And I, I feel like my perception was that Charlie Cosmo had like come back for Can't Hardly Wait. So when I interviewed him, it was sobering to realize that it just happened to be the part that he got. And then I felt sad because he said he got really close on The Ice Storm and Wonder Boys, both of which went to Tobey Maguire. And I am not the world's foremost Tobey Maguire person. So hearing Damn that about- Tobey Maguire. <laughs> Hearing that Charlie Korsmo or Jason James Richter or, or just some of these other guys that, that got close on things but lost out to a Tobey Maguire made me feel sad. Yeah, that part of your, of your interview is really tragic because it got me thinking about Tobey Maguire. And he is kind of a, a weird presence for me to where I feel like he works as Spider-Man and he got Spider-Man, right? He didn't need the ice storm. That could have gone to Cosmo. It should have gone to Cosmo. McGuire didn't even need those roles, man. It's not fair. Cosmo should still be acting now. I'm sure he's a great teacher, but I could just imagine this entire career for him playing all these really fun parts because what about Bob? Extremely memorable. He's one of the most memorable characters and he's just one of the, he's the therapist kid and he steals all his scenes and hook. He's so great. He's so good. And in this, I mean, we're saying here now he's supposed to be like the secondary protagonist, but he's the true hero of the movie. Just reading his interview, I, I kind of enjoyed the tone there where 
he's like, yeah, I mean, I kind of wish that would have happened. I'm happy now. Like he, he sounds really happy and well-adjusted and like he's, he's a really good teacher, but also that he doesn't mind entertaining the notion that like, you know, he, he could have kept acting if things had worked out just a little bit differently. If Tobey Maguire had never been born. If it hadn't been for Edward Furlong taking his spot in T2, man, <laughs> he would have been up there. All, all through the 90s. Jordan read my mind. That's what I was going to say, too, about that uh, Charlie Cosmo was almost John Connor, but couldn't do it for contractual reasons. And then I liked what, what he had to say, that even if that had happened, he didn't want to be acting all day, every day, uh, or being someone who was out there so much, but that if he could have been Bill Paxton and just showing up when, whenever James Cameron calls or something, that he would have been happy to do that. So I thought that was a, a good way to put sort of the way that he saw himself, even even if things had gone much better. Yeah, it's refreshing to hear that from an actor, you know, some, and especially as a kid, like the maturity level there where he's like, well, it actually wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to do other things. And that wasn't like the life I saw for myself. So I totally respect that. We were talking a little bit about the Preston and Amanda relationship and, and those characters versus some of the others. And I wanted to bring up Denise and Kenny, Lauren Ambrose and Seth Green, and these characters in the relationship that we see develop how they actually have a history together where they've known each other since they were like in the first grade or whatever. I don't know if you could say that this relationship by the end of the movie would go the long haul. And I kind of like that at the end, like Denise breaks up with them after five minutes and then 10 minutes later, they found a bathroom and rekindled their love or whatever. So it's kind of a mixed message there. Um, that, you know, these people actually know each other. They have a real connection, it seems. Like, there's uh, there's some deeper character study of them of, like, rediscovering friends uh, from, like, the younger grades where they lost touch. And then Kenny just got too, school, too cool for school and, like, just kind of left her behind. And she's just super antisocial. So I like that we get these kind of quieter moments between them and, you know, the whole sex scene. The movie kind of ends with Seth Green kind of being that homeboy gangster wannabe character again a little bit. Like his last line is like, girl, come get some of this or something. And he's, he's still talking like that. And she just looks really uncomfortable. Like, I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> I love that look on her face. But there's, a, you know, maybe it was just like the magic of the night and they're not really going to work out or it was just physical. Yeah, it's just interesting I feel like their relationship is just a little bit more nuanced than the Amanda and Preston relationship. I think it's a lot more nuanced. Yeah. Yeah. That scene where they first kiss before they have sex and, but they just kiss like a little smoochy at first. And then there's like a pause between them where they're kind of feeling each other out. That's like movie magic, man. Yeah. It's like a magical moment. And then they, they have like a much more deeper kiss. It's great. I love even when they're making up at the end because, you know, they get in a fight almost immediately after they have sex for the first time where they both take the blame. Like there's like a lot of maturity there where they both own up to their part in their fight that they have earlier. Yeah. That I thought was really well done. So I don't know. Maybe one day it could work. Like the the facial expressions that Seth Green works through before he says, I'm, I'm sorry, like a very sincere 
Ernest Sari, you know, coming from this character that we started with in the convenience store. He's like, oh, I'm going to get so many honeys tonight, you know, <laughs> like just this progression. Uh, and it, it feels like a real relationship, you know, despite the kind of like over the topness of the situational comedy in, you know, the big party and them being locked in the bathroom and everything. But I don't know, it, it just feels like, oh, this could have happened to you. Oh, definitely. It's also a movie that it tries to give all the characters a sense of awkwardness and flailing and defense mechanism, but it's possibly, and I'm saying this as I think it, so please correct me if you disagree, but it, it's possibly the only case in which the movie finds two people where their defense mechanisms can sort of work off of each other in a way that works well, because it's not it's farther along than like the stuff with William and Mike or Preston and Amanda. I feel like between Kenny and Denise, they sort of have a chip on their shoulder, but they're also, I mean, they, they reflect on moments that happened to them 10 years ago as if they happened 10 minutes ago. You really feel that sense of like remembering how something made you feel, but also the way that it bonds them too. I think that we believe it when they like each other and we believe it when they hate each other and that's impressive yeah i agree they complement each other perfectly like i love in those opening credits of the movie when they're showing like your the yearbook entries for some of the characters they're showing like their portraits but all the shots of the graduation which opens the movie is just from the neck down which i thought was cool but for denise fleming for lauren ambrose's character her bio is activities none and i just love that she doesn't put herself out there at all right like there's two girls make a bet in the middle of the movie and ask one of them asks, were you in this class and she says yes and then she's like you owe me 10 bucks she did go to our school like she has not put herself out there at all whereas seth green is putting himself out there way too much way too far he has so many amazing lines that are so over the top like i don't think that this line of dialogue yo what you gotta waste my flavor damn i don't think that's in <laughs> that can't be in any other movie so th <laughs> it is unique for that right they fit together really well i agree yeah i think he's just such a fun character and to see his, him let down his guard and put down those defense mechanisms and then you know his whole voice changing at one point was like I, I don't always talk like this I don't yeah it's just so believable and relatable and he's such a doofus at the beginning but kind of grows on you especially in those bathroom moments and then at the you know the apology or the fight in the apology scene in the parking lot later so yeah I just feel like it has a lot going for it in those scenes with Denise and Kenny Definitely. The only thing I don't like about it is that it has to involve the, the mandatory 90s sitcom setup of a locked door, which we just <laughs> which was everywhere for a while. Um, but I did want to, when you mentioned that about that, why you got to waste my flavor, even though this makes no sense and Airborne came out several years earlier, I do wish that somehow magically someone needs to just cut a version of the um, the trying on clothes sequence in Airborne, where when uh, Mitchell is laughing at Wiley at one point, I feel like I wish we could just hear almost imperceptibly, but just in the very background, while Seth Green's character is trying on those clothes, his voice saying, why you got to waste my flavor during Airborne. That would just be perfect. <laughs> That'd be a great mashup. And I feel like Shane McDermott's got to be hidden somewhere in this crowd, right? <laughs> 
Right. How how is he not in this? He's got to be. Nick, you brought up Angus earlier, and I wanted to point out the Klepto Kid, played by Chris Owen, who's also the young, weird-looking kid in Angus, the friend of Angus. So you've got Klepto Kid throughout almost every scene of this where he just kind of pops up and steals something. You know, at the end, he's stealing the police car when the when the police raid the party and then at the diner he runs off with the gumball machine so it's just like little details like that again i feel like in a late 90s teen movie you'd get something like this and you you wouldn't really get that anywhere else Uh, i I just love that flavor if you will (laughs) yeah there's so many great touches in this movie i'll give my score away If if i gave this a score in high school when i first watched it I'd give it like a four out of 10 and be like too cool for school. Even though like I was jumping up and down to Blink-182 songs. Meantime, I had <laughs> to go to some kind of dance and they played it, you know, in senior year. Now I'm like on the opposite end where <laughs> there's a scene where Ethan Embry is going to a payphone to call Barry Manilow, which is so ridiculous and runs into <laughs> a stripper. And there's the whole scene and it's Jenna Elfman from Dharma and Greg, which is a whole nother nineties flavor to this movie. But when he walks up to the payphone, just the way it's lit, even when he's driving to the payphone, he's filmed from the dashboard. You get like that dashboard angle, which is so 90s. And like the smoky air, like through the car windows is so 90s. And Love Hurts playing feels so 90s. And then then he gets to the payphone. And then all I could think of is getting off of work at Winn-Dixie in high school and driving to the payphone at the Shell station and calling my parents and saying, hey, I'm going out to this party or this get-together, and I'll bring Arissa home. She's going to be there. Arissa's my sister. I'm going to pick up my sister, and I'll bring her home. Or I don't have her, and I don't know where she is. I guess she's getting a ride somewhere else. And then go out, and that was it. That would be my last communication because there were no cell phones. That payphone was how I would tell my parents what I was doing, you know, like I got off of work at Winn-Dixie and I'm still alive and I'm going somewhere or I'm coming home. So just that payphone and him making that call and the aesthetics of how that scene is lit and looks, even that was making me tear up. Like, like I miss the nineties. Ah, uh, the payphone years, the payphone years, the eight out of 10 that I'm giving this movie now is completely subjective. Like I have no objectivity and how I think of this movie now it's flipped so hard that I've doubled my score for it. <laughs> That's awesome, man. What about you, uh, Matt? What score rating would you give this? Wow. That shouldn't be a hard question, but it kind of is at this point. I'm I'm looking at my notes and, and the other things that sort of resonate with me and, and where I even fall at this point. I, when it comes to memorable lines, no matter how I ever felt about this movie, I would often think about if someone like talks about what someone's going to wear or describing something with t-shirts. I just am always thinking about kind of tall, has hair, wears t-shirts sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> Such a good line. And I was very surprised that rewatching it now, the final moments in the train station, which again are very bad because that relationship <laughs> is terrible Yeah, um, between Preston and Amanda. But I did have to make note that before sunset is like that ending is one of the most beloved endings of the last 20 years. Yeah. Any list you read of like the the best endings or the most romantic movies of this century that will be on it. And that the ending of that movie where 
But one of them says, baby, you're going to miss that plane. Celine says it to Jesse, right? I, I shouldn't have brought this up if I couldn't remember for sure. The point is... You're just being like me. It's all good. <laughs> I haven't done it yet this episode, so you're doing it. It's perfect. <laughs> That's okay. It's been a while since I, I've watched Before Midnight much more recently, so I, I'm thinking about their, their later period in the relationship. But that feeling of, baby, you're going to miss that plane is essentially what they say to each other and can't hardly wait. You're going to have to take your later train. Yeah. Same, like, same moment. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought about that connection, but that's, that is interesting. Jordan, before you give your opinion, I also want to say one quick thing. We didn't really talk about the soundtrack a lot. Yeah, I wanted to touch on that. It's like a main character in this movie. Like, the music's constant. Sometimes it's on the nose, sometimes it's not. I don't care if it's on the nose, though. I love it. When Blink hits, when the party gets broken up by the cops, it's so perfect again. Like, I was tearing up. Damn It by Blink-182 is like one of the first songs I learned on guitar, and that's not saying much because it's like four chords. Yeah, but I, <laughs> I'm remembering you playing it back then. Yeah. That's making me tear up. Yeah, so it's like one of my favorite Blink-182 songs, always associated with this movie, and, and just think it hits at the perfect point. I had the, the CD soundtrack back in the day. Most recently, I went through a uh, cassette tape phase and got that also on cassette just you know so for <laughs> nostalgia purposes nick knows i've been diving deep into the replacements for a couple of years now just going back through all their discography and we got to talk about the title of the movie coming from their song can't hardly wait which is a great song plays in the end credits here and like you said nick just the soundtrack there's so many great songs like in the movie that aren't on the actual soundtrack and watching it after having listened to the cassette i was blown away by that just like it's just back to back to back like all throughout this and you you brought up american graffiti earlier and i wanted to touch on that movie and also days and confused how i never really thought of this movie in that same vein before growing up with it and I would definitely say like those movies are like of a different tier, right? Like they're probably objectively better movies. They're, this movie is definitely a bit more like of the goofy energy type, the late 90s teen movie for sure. But there's a line where the stoner guy talks about Velma and says uh, she was a hip hip lady, which is what a character from Days Con Confused says exactly about Martha Washington. And that got me thinking about comparing the two films, like end of the school year, big parties, hanging out with the characters, just kind of like a big hangout movie. I feel like there'd be an interesting double feature or even triple feature with American Graffiti. That's funny that you said that because I was walking, uh, walking to my car from work. I have a really long walk and it just popped in my head about how I used to compare this negatively to American Graffiti. But you know what? I was looking at that movie with rose-colored glasses. I love it. But, I mean, Richard Dreyfuss's character is not so different from Ethan Embry's in this. I mean, they're, they're kind of similar. They're kind of similar. And a lot of the beats in this movie 
are similar and I'd bring Animal House into this a little bit too because there are some similarities there except you know they're in college there but I just think of some of the parties there I think this stands toe-to-toe with those I think people will rose-colored glass coming-of-age movies all the time and I'm doing it now with a movie I used to not like so I, I think it stands right there I think this is pretty representative of that late 90s high school aesthetic I'm saying that because I lived it so I think it stands there Jordan I think it works Oh, and by the way, that replacement song, there's a whole era of film shake of Jordan trying to make me like the replacements and me telling him it's not going to happen. But you know what? That song worked at the end of this movie. That was great track placement there. Great song, Jordan. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. I feel vindicated. <laughs> and I think those comparisons are, are good because part of why there have been so many coming of age movies and, and why they connect with people so much is because that that period is obviously so transformative for people, but everyone is so on just a different track and different levels of comfort. Everyone's experiencing things and the perception of what everyone else is feeling and thinking and doing is so varied. So when we look at some of these other films that also touched on different segments of the pop of the high school population and where they were at in their lives, now that we're all older, to look back on movies like this and sort of see the different groups within the high school from kind of a little bit more of a psychological perspective and just sort of what leads people to bond with each other, to feel comfortable, to be excluded from other things. I mean, we, it seems that because as, as Nick said, with what was once considered nerd culture now being the dominant thing uh, on top of a lot of other reasons, we, we can hope that one positive of that is that the world is hopefully less clicky um, for kids. I don't know if that's true. I like to believe it is, but that things are not quite broken down in the same way that that in the in the obsession with like social status that a lot of the the movies of the '90s uh, and the shows were too. That came up a lot in in my book on Say by the Bell too. But I think the the experience of being young and not knowing how to reconcile one thing or another is timeless. I mean, you look at a movie like Booksmart, that's to an extent the modern version of of a, a Preston character or something like that. They're so much more interesting than Preston ever is, but they're extremely successful academically. They're, they're on the path for their lives, but they didn't really experience anything in high school. They're trying to figure out how to utilize their time socially at the last possible second so that's that's another way that like this idea can work it just it's been done a lot better than it was in can hardly wait saying all that what's your score rating (laughs) i guess i'd probably land on just like a five out of ten on this maybe all right all right kind of punting with a shrug a little bit (laughs) all right and i'm gonna reveal mine here i'm gonna give it a four out of five so kind of in the same territory with nick twins just really enjoyed this coming back to this all right well any other thoughts before we move into our movie connection i'm sure two hours from now i'm gonna wake up in my bed and say i should have said this it's one of those movies where yeah there's just so so many scenes so many characters and things touched on it's just hard to recall them all in you know afterwards but in the moment it's just such a thrill ride for me it's such a just enjoyable watch Right. That uh, I, I could definitely watch it again soon. Right. I'll say Denise, whose parents' house the party was at, I like that she's really been through it by the end of the night. <laughs> she looks so terrible. 
Right, when she's kicking him out of the bathroom at the end, her hair's all crazy. She's got like right. stains all over her dress. Right. It, it looks like she's aged like 25 years in one night. That yeah. was that was great. And also, I wrote this note. Can't go wrong with Dire Straits when everyone is making up. That band is so <laughs> relatable. So good. I also didn't realize that the writers of Can't Hardly Wait, who also directed the movie, also wrote movies like Maid of Honor and Leap Year, which are both much worse than Can't Hardly Wait. <laughs> oh, they are. Don't they forget are. Flintstones and Viva Rock Vegas. <laughs> but they also, did you guys ever, so we're talking about Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfont, who wrote and directed Can't Hardly Wait. They also wrote and directed Josie and the Pussycats. Did you guys ever see that? And I believe it has some of the same actors in it, too. Been a while. From like 2000, 2001 been a long time I feel like it's it's got a cult following at this point yeah and speaking of movie connections they were also writers for a very brady sequel nick so calling back to our last episode night of the demons 2 with christine taylor i don't know Ooh, if she nice. was in that sequel but yeah brady's there you go right and you know what i'm sure at some point in the show sliders they accidentally slid into a demon dimension you know like house of the demons and jerry o'connell from sliders and a lot of other stuff shows up in this for just one minute he's trip mcneely, trip McNeely. <laughs> who has graduated and comes back to this party and is really not having as good a time in college as he did in high school man such a great cameo from him and and just his burps and his drunk energy in that scene so great <laughs> He's so beaten down in that moment. It, the scene is so creative. Mike has imagined what it, life is going to be like for him in in just a couple of weeks. I mean, the, the chronology of, of what's happening, that, that they even broke up on graduation day as opposed to like the end of the summer. I'm not sure that makes any sense. But in that moment, Mike is just like, oh, I can't wait for college. And, and Trips is he, he's been there for such a short time and it has ruined him. <laughs> I love the little detail that he tells him to wear rubber flip-flops in the shower because I got warts all over my feet, man. <laughs> it's so gross. It's so gross. <laughs> oh, and I'd like to draw a connection between both the movies we covered today, Dead Man on Campus and Can't Hardly Wait. Both feature a song by Creed. Creed's everywhere in 1998. They're also mm. prominently featured in Halloween H2O, also uh, from 1998. Nice. I'm probably the only person who rewatches this and is like, oh, wow, Dog's Eye View is a band that exists. Yeah, I, I did not remember them at all. But listening to the soundtrack, I was like, oh, yeah, there's the late 90s for you. Yeah. And how about when Ethan Embry jumps over the bench at the end to get to Jennifer Love Hewitt? He actually looked cool right there. Like that was one part where he actually kind of looked badass. I was like, that is totally from his skateboarding skills that they don't feature in this movie. Because I feel like he's such a he has like such a stoner skater vibe. Again, calling back to my 1998 self wasn't a stoner, but I, I did skateboard and wasn't great at it, but I don't know. He just has the clothes that he wears, the energy that he has. I'm like, and then he makes that jump over that bench. I'm like, oh yeah, that's totally like a skateboard jump right there. <laughs> you were a solid skater. I don't know about that. Well, moving on to movie connection, Nick, what did you have connecting this uh, to Night of the Demons to Can't Hardly Wait? I have the most obvious connection of all, which is that this movie is all about going to a party and facing your demons, Jordan. Oh, I like it. Well, I've got a, a little, again, sticking with the little details, Robert Jane, a.k.a. Bobby Jacoby, plays our buddy Perry in Night of the Demons 2, 
and he plays Richie Coolboy, aka Homeboy Number Two, one of Seth Green's friends in Can't Hardly Wait. <laughs> that was pretty good, buddy. Such, wow. such a, like a I don't know, just happened to see that on the Plex where we were watching this. I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> same guy. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I, I'll, you mentioned Selma Blair as well, uh, being one of the girls that Mike hits on when he's outside on the uh, on the swing and just wanted to throw cruel intentions out there as well. Her featured in one of our other movies that we've covered. So, again, just so many millions of cameos in this movie. Yes. And Jordan, is that it for your connection? That's it, man. All right. It's time for the trivia battle. Hold it. Pop quiz, hot shot. Jordan. Jordan, I am so pumped about this battle. <laughs> I am so Nick, excited. I actually I, wrote questions this time. I'm so proud of you. Jordan, I want you to win so badly. I, oh, no. I'm begging you to win this trivia battle. I do have an advantage, and so do you. We have Matt here. We can do phone a Matt, where if we are stumped by one of the questions, we can reach out and ask Matt for help. So, Matt, are you game? Do you think you yeah. can you can help us in this regard in any way? I am here to possibly provide an answer. <laughs> we all love the 90s here. And so, Nick, what facet of trivia are you throwing at me this time? Well, Jordan, so Peter Fascinelli's character in this movie, you know, Mike Dexter, who broke up with Jennifer Love Hewitt, he had this whole plan, like, I broke up with her so I could have sex with as many girls as I want. Hey, and all my friends who are dating supermodels, you should also break up with your girlfriends and right. do the same thing. And none of them do because, Jordan, he's expecting one of his friends to break up with Jamie Presley. Jordan, you know mm -hmm. I had a crush on a thousand different women in the 90s, but in the late 90s, <laughs> I don't even think it's fair to say that what I had with Jamie Presley was a crush. It was probably something else. But all that to something say. Something deeper. Yes. <laughs> All my questions are based on Jamie Presley. And you might be thinking like, wait, that's not fair. She hardly did anything. Well, that's not true. She actually did a lot. She's actually pretty versatile. She's actually very funny. And I think she's a solid actress in certain movies that she's been called to act and not just, uh, you know, be eye candy. But mm -hmm. these questions, I don't think they're that hard, Jordan. I don't okay. think they're that hard at all. I don't know much about Jamie Presley. So she's the, she's not British in this, but... For some reason, she reminds me of one of the Spice Girls, which reminds me of, of British. She's the one with the shorter, like, hair pulled up in the back. I'm looking up her picture here. Okay, I, I, I recognize which one she was. All right. All right. I hope that her picture didn't have a bunch of movies that she was in next to it. Oh, snap. Sorry, I just spoiled it. All you didn't just cheat at all the questions. I want you to win, but I don't want you to cheat. Okay, <sighs> I won't cheat. So the questions I'm throwing at you here... We talked about the music. We talked about the soundtrack. So big part of this movie for me. And so all the questions here are going to revolve around that, the music and the soundtrack for Can't Hardly Wait. All right. All right. All right. Question number one. Which actor also provided music for the soundtrack of the film? Was it A, Ethan Embry, B, Charlie Corsmo, C, Jennifer Love Hewitt, or D, Brecken Meyer, a.k.a. Walter, a.k.a. lead singer of Love Burger. So is this like a trick question? Because Corsmo sings and it's in the movie. His actual singing is featured in the film. Or do you mean like who is featured on the commercially released soundtrack, Jordan? Not on the... So, okay, just to be clear, not referring to any 
diegetic music, as in him singing there, but music that's actually used on the soundtrack of the film, not featured on the CD release, but yes, an actor provides music that is played in the movie at some point. I don't like this question, Jordan. This feels a little (laughs) hinky. I mean, I thought this was going to be pretty easy. I thought this would be maybe the most obvious. Am I overthinking it? I don't know. Because Corsmo does sing. I'm just going to say that. And if you say it's wrong, I'm just going to say that you're a dick, Jordan. I hate you. (laughs) Okay. I'll give you another chance. It's not him singing. Um, Just to be clear, it's not that moment. And that has no effect on this question. It's not him singing Paradise City. Yeah. I I don't know. Then I'll just guess Breckenmeyer. No, it was Jennifer Love Hewitt. She has uh, a track featured on the soundtrack. Again, not the CD release, but yeah, she's also uh, a musical artist. No shade on her, but back when I was a DJ, there was a show that came on after us called Absolute Crap. And the whole purpose of the show was to play music from celebrity vanity projects. And they played, <laughs> they played Jennifer Love Hewitt's How Do I Deal every week. And that song is so terrible. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, hit me with your question. All right, here's my much more fair Jor- uh, question, Jordan. In 1998, Presley starred in one other film, a film based on the Jerry Springer show. That film was titled A, The Ringmaster, B, Jerry, C, Jerry, 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 or D, take it off. No, it's got to be the ringmaster. That's right. That's the only actual movie title right. in all the choices. <laughs> Man, way to lay it on me. <laughs> yeah, they're a great job, Jordan. Really proud of you there for thank, thank you, man. scrunching your brain muscles. Have you seen that movie? <laughs> I feel like I've seen bits and pieces it's of it. It's not yeah. too great. It's not great. No, it's not great. It's pretty trashy. I miss Jerry Springer, right. though. Yeah. Horrible, horrible element of the 90s, but... Me and my cousin Adrian watched it every week, and we did yell Jerry at the screen. So, all right, what uh, what kind right. of what kind of bullshit do you have for me now, Jordan? Right, I mean, you you know, I, I always lose. So I got to make my questions a little harder. Yeah, you know, at some hope of winning. So, sorry that you think these are such bullshit. But yeah, next question number two: Which of these songs is not on the original soundtrack in the movie, but is? Uh, wait, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's so stupid. You don't even know what your own question means. Okay, which of these songs is on is in featured in the movie while you're watching the movie? It's featured on the soundtrack there, but it's not featured on the actual soundtrack release. <laughs> All right. Man, I just want to say it's kind of funny, right? Every time we have trivia battles, I win. But then sometimes I feel bad for Jordan, so I make my questions really easy, but it always somehow syncs up with when he is Me a making dick like ridiculous and makes trick questions. <laughs> All right. Here's your here's your options. So w- one of these songs is featured in the movie, but is not on the CD or the cassette that was put out. A tricky by Run DMC. B damn Six it. Underground is not in the by Blink One Eighty Two is in the movie, but not on the soundtrack. Is that one of the options? No. C Inside Out by Eve Six or D Paradise City by Guns N' Roses. I think there's an Eve Six song on the soundtrack, but it's not Inside Out. And that sounds like the kind of trickery that you would partake in. So I'm going to guess that. Okay, it is in the it is in the movie, but no, it's not on the CD or cassette. Yeah, so I caught you. Got, you got it. Yeah. You bastard. It. Now I'm going to start asking <laughs> you the hard questions at the end of my things. You piss me off. <laughs> oh, no. I've poked the bear. Now, none of these are hard. I didn't even make a hard question for you. Okay. Uh, well, I will ask the one that's kind of hard. 
which entry in the Poison Ivy franchise starred Presley? This is my one kind of difficult question, and it's not even that hard. Was it A, Poison Ivy, B, Poison Ivy 2, Lily, C, Poison Ivy, The New Seduction, or D, Poison Ivy, The Secret Society? Ah, uh, man, I have no idea. Matt, I'm going to phone you. Do you have any, any clue? New Seduction. That is correct. That is correct. All right. All right. Thank you, Matt. And if I remember correctly from a late night viewing, I think Murdoch from MacGyver is in there and she's married to him and he maybe gets murdered. I don't know. Great job. All right. Great job. Let's let's see if I can stomp you with this one, Nick. <laughs> Question three. I can't wait. What is the first song on the original soundtrack? You <laughs> suck. <laughs> <laughs> Was it A, Graduate by Third Eye Blind? B, Damn It by Blink-182, C, Can't Hardly Wait by The Replacements, or D, Can't Get Enough of You Baby by Smash Mouth. Is it, okay, so I bought the soundtrack since I buy all the soundtracks, and it hasn't come in yet, but I feel like Graduate was listed at the top. You got it. You got it. (laughs) (laughs) Which I, I wanted to point out earlier, too, about the Smash Mouth song. I hate fucking Smash Mouth. They're so obnoxious. But the way that they use like some of the little like keyboard and, and jingle from their song in this movie. And they do it multiple times. I don't know. It just perfectly fits the kind of goofy energy of this, that it just really works. And so that's the only props I'll ever give to smash mouth. <laughs> well, it's weird. Like I hated smash mouth then, right? Like I went to Louisiana boys state in 1999 I don't know how long we were there. I guess it was eight days. And they played All-Star like six trillion times. And I already hated Uh, it. But by the end of that, like I was about to murder the counselor who was pushing play on the boombox. But now when I hear like Smash Mouth or Sugar Ray or something else I hated, it just makes me nostalgic. It's so stupid. It's so dumb. Don't give in to the nostalgia, man. I think All-Star is the primary reason why I hate them. Because that song just played so many times and just just like a like a tapeworm in your brain i don't actively listen to it right i'm not like looking it up on spotify but if like i hear it on a commercial i'm like ah, the 90s (laughs) nice i definitely hope that people who watch can't hardly wait now are more motivated to go back through the soul coughing catalog than the smash mouth (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) they have a a song on one of the x-files soundtracks soul coughing all right here we go Jamie Presley starred again with Jason Segel in this comedy. Was it A, Knocked Up, B, I Love You Man, C, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, or D, The Five-Year Engagement? Hmm, I've only seen one of those. I'm going to guess Knocked Up? No, it was I Love You Man. Ah, okay, okay. I saw all of these, most of them in the theater. Actually, my wife and I went to see three out of four of these in the theater. (laughs) Of course. Of course. You didn't even use your phone on that. What the hell? <laughs> you say these are uh, easy, but I mean, who the hell? <laughs> J.B. Presley. I've known nothing about this actor. Oh, that's your fault, man. That's, yeah. your, that's your loss. Um, mm. Okay. She was also, what? she was in My Name is Earl. I think that was probably her her longest, like most longstanding role. She was really funny in that. Yeah, yeah. All right, so what are you punishing me with this time? For our next episode, it's my pick, and I'm picking Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, because it's the 30th anniversary of that movie, and I kind of have this trilogy of films from 
the Christmas of 1992, where I had that really weird Christmas break I've talked about before, and I really wanted to cap it off by talking about this movie that I saw three times in theaters then, Jordan. And there's some really weird stuff in this movie, and I just really want to go back to it and talk about it. But you know what? Home Alone, I never saw Jordan, because it looked like garbage. Oh, no. I never saw Home Alone 3, Jordan. Hmm. So let's mm. make that the punishment movie. I might even watch this with you. I might even <laughs> you better. watch that with you. <laughs> Home Alone 3. I'm pretty sure like my kids have watched all of the Home Alone movies. And I just shake my head like, well, no, guys. Like, I, I should have taught you better. Like, you're supposed to stop after two. <laughs> Whatever. But, uh, yeah. Written by John Hughes. Apparently produced by John Hughes. So, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's something to it. But, yeah. No Macaulay Culkin. No Joe Pesci, <laughs> no, uh, what's his name? Daniel Stern. Daniel Stern, yeah. Hey, you know what, though? It has Alex D. Lenz, and it has uh, Haviland Morris. Does that get you excited? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Real uh, burning up for those, those guys. How about the Golden Raspberry Award that it almost won uh, for Worst Remake or Sequel, but <laughs> lost because Speed 2 also came out that year? All right, so a little, a little Home Alone theme going on next time. I was really excited before really the trivia so, battle. Really excited I'm depressed now. How the hell did you lose that? Uh. Uh, see, you come in thinking I'm going to win, and that's how you always defeat me, just with like, oh, you, you couldn't possibly lose this time. I made this question so easy. <laughs> and tried to make my question so hard, but somehow you still got them. Unreal. Well, Matt... Thanks so much for for putting up with all this and joining us. Thank you for your insights on Can't Hardly Wait. Greatest luck to you with the book, Talk 90s With Me. Hope people will check that out. Where can people find you online, connect with you? Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, This was a lot of fun. I really uh, appreciate the time. Appreciate finding more fans of whatever it takes and, and all the things that, that we think no one else out there uh, even saw or cares about. So that's an important thing. So I'm at Matt Pace, M-A-T-T-P-A-I-S in all the usual places, uh, or just my website is my name, mattpace.com. Yeah, all the books are on Amazon and it's awesome to, to turn back the clock, but also not think that we can only have the perspective on things that we had at that time. It can be both. Right. Definitely. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Film Shake, 90s movie podcast. You can leave us a review and a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your pods. We definitely appreciate that. If you are a fan of the show and you want to support us, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash filmshake and get bonus content and extra episodes there where we kind of break out of the 90s mode and talk about just stuff that we've been watching so three dollars a month get bonus episodes definitely connect with us on twitter or facebook at 90s movies pod you can come chat with us there or send us an email at filmshakepodcast at gmail.com and we'll catch you next time for more film shake take it easy
Why you gotta waste my flavor? Damn! I can't feel my legs. I have no legs! Preston? I don't know. Well, the hair is kind of, I don't know. Brown? No, it's not really brown. Oh, he's tall. Yeah. He's kind of, kind of tall. Sort of tall. And he's like always wearing like t-shirts. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> so he's sort of tall. Kind of. With hair. Yeah. And he wears t-shirts sometimes. Yeah. Yes. That's it? Yes. Well. I mean he's Preston. Preston. You know? Preston. I like that guy. Preston! You know who else I like who never got much play? Is Velma from Scooby-Doo. She, she was also a cool, she was a hip, hip, hip lady. Her tanner kind of looks like a Klingon warship.